saints from one another. And Lord, we uh, are grateful for that. Lord, we pray that as we open your word, that you would uh, strengthen our hearts to serve you even greater. Uh, we pray for this next Lord's Day that, um, Lord, that you would uh, direct us to that one or to that to those two that you would have us bring with us to worship with us Sunday morning on this special day. Father, we do pray that um, you, you um, provide healing for uh, the procedure, that uh, shoulder procedure that's upcoming, and Lord, for knee replacement that's going to happen on Friday. Father, I pray, we pray for, for your hand of guidance for the doctors, for uh, all those attending, that you would give um, just uh, insight beyond their own understanding to uh, be able to perform the procedure in a way that will be a just wonderful and that there will be an, a wonderful outcome. And Lord, we pray for um, a, a, a good quality time of rehab and, and then a back to a quality of life that uh, these uh, sweet ladies enjoy. Father, uh, we pray for all that's going on on campus tonight. We pray for uh, the, the preschool, children, student ministries, our our worship, our choir rehearsal that's going on, orchestra, band rehearsals that are going on. Father, be uh, present and bless each and every one. And then, Lord, we pray for tonight. We pray that uh, this one, as we worship, as we learn of your word, that you would help us to be uh, hearers, not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word. Guide the pastor. Thank you for him. Bless him. Bless his family, Lord, as he leads us. And, Lord, just... Um, used tonight uh, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Jody. We appreciate you guys being here tonight. I know that over the last couple of weeks we've been uh, studying together the subject, the questions that all Christians need to be able to answer. And we have been dealing with lots of different subjects in no particular order. If you've been with us throughout the entire study, you know that uh, We've been kind of moving in different directions every week. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about, is there proof that Jesus was raised from the dead? We talked about, is evolution a reality or is it a, uh, a, a farce? We've talked about, uh, is the Bible something that I can believe in? We've looked together at the subject um, of evil. Why is there evil in the world? And so we've been trying to kind of hit all of these questions and we haven't really been doing them in a particular order. We've just been kind of uh, jumping around. Next week, for example, we're going to be uh, talking about, and John's going to be uh, speaking next week, uh, but he's going to be talking about the reality of, of heaven and hell, or heaven and hell real places, and uh, trying to be able to give us some biblical direction on that. And so in looking at all of the questions we've been dealing with on our Wednesday night studies, it occurred to me, and this wasn't an oversight, but it occurred to me, that maybe we ought to take and circle all the way back to the beginning and try tonight to see if we can answer the question, does God exist? Because if God doesn't exist, then all of the other questions we've been talking about are really pointless, and they have uh, no merit or no value, because if God doesn't exist, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says. It really uh, doesn't matter uh, that there's evil in the world. It really doesn't matter that there was a resurrection because if God doesn't exist there was no resurrection and so we're going to circle back tonight and really kind of deal with this question about the existence of God 
But before we begin, I want you to see uh, just a little a video clip to kind of introduce what we're going to talk about. Sometimes we're asked the question, can we prove the existence of God? And, you know, it's a, it's a strange idea because in one sense, there's a moral intuition that something exists. Like Immanuel Kant talked about two great realities that basically inspired him, the starry heavens above, the moral law within. So there was a basic awareness. And I remember that even as a child, um, I didn't overtly believe in a God that I followed, but I believed that there was a God out there. It was almost like there was some sense. So can we prove that God exists? I think there are evidential trails, but not proof in the sense of a mathematical proof like two plus two equals four. I think what we use is a sense of arguments that look for what we call the argument towards the best fit. Cumulative case arguments. So we look at various things like in a, in a, a murder case or a case trying to prove the issue of uh, uh, the guilt of someone in a crime. You have to gather evidence from many different pieces and the cumulative case argument adds up. In that sense, I think we can point towards the existence of God, the probabilities, but it's not the same as a mathematical proof. If by prove, we mean equating it with 100% certainty, then no, we cannot prove with 100% certainty the existence of God. But is the existence of God the most probable explanation for all that is? I think we have reasons, we have arguments that have come down through history that make the reasonableness of God and God's existence very, very probable and likely. What do we mean when we say prove? Everyone should have a certain level of certainty that they're looking for, and 100% certainty is just out of the question. We can't be 100% certain that we even exist. We can't have 100% certainty that we're even here when we're talking from a philosophical standpoint. So the question is, how much certainty are you willing to have before you act or believe something? And that's what we need to come up with, thresholds of certainty. What is the most coherent explanation? What's the best explanation for the world around us? And if we look at it from that perspective, as we do everything in life, then we can have very good reason to believe that God exists. Most of the time when people ask that kind of a question, they're looking for the type of proof that we really only find in, in uh, mathematics and maybe some of the hard sciences. But that type of proof is really not necessary, it's not even helpful when we are trying to determine whether or not uh, God exists and what our relationship with Him should be. What is more interesting is whether or not we can come to know that God exists and whether we can really have a relationship with Him. And that is not, that is not uh, a difficult question to answer because the answer is yes, God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, I believe we attempt to prove God's existence or argue for God's existence because the evidence is so strong. It's so compelling that it seems almost illogical to argue against God's existence. So again, if somebody sets out to prove God's existence with 100% certainty, they're likely to be disappointed. But if they set out to show the reasonableness for the existence of God, then I think there are very strong arguments that can be made and we can have some degree of satisfaction with that. There is, there is grounding, there is a foundation for belief in God.
So what we're going to try to do tonight is to walk through some of the arguments that have been set forth through the years uh, to uh, prove the existence of God, or at least arguments in favor of the existence of God. On your table tonight, you have a handout, and it says theology proper at the top. Um, I want you to hold on to that. It'll serve as somewhat of a guide for you um, that you can follow along as we look at some of these arguments together. I know that I saw about five people when they walked in and picked up the little sheet that said theology proper. They ran out the door, and I think they went to Brahms for a, a malt. Uh, because they thought this would be a, a theological lecture, and I don't want it to be that tonight. What I want it to be for you is a helpful discussion and maybe a helpful introduction to you that will help you in responding to your agnostic or atheist coworkers or friends or neighbors or, in many of our cases, family members as we talk about the existence of God. Now, remember, we've started when we began this series together a number of Wednesday nights ago by helping us to get a picture of the culture. And I gave you a little illustration. I remember uh, years ago, and this wasn't even, you know, it was even in, in, in when I first became uh, a pastor and first started off in ministry, um, where you could basically sit down with someone and when you wanted to talk about a subject like does God exist or why does evil exist or is the resurrection true, that you could take out your Bible and you could say, well, let's open our Bible and if we're going to argue, let's argue from the Bible and let's see what the Bible has to say about this. And more times than not, somebody was willing to sit down and listen to what you would teach them or what you would help them to see uh, from the Bible, the insights you were sharing with them. But I think most of us would agree that we live in a culture today where a lot of people do not take the Bible uh, literally or even understand it to be God's Word. And so if your only arguments for some of these subjects that we're talking about would be to take somebody to the Bible, what do you do if that person says, I don't believe the Bible? At that point, we have two options. One, we can help them to see the evidences that exist outside of the Bible that might open their eyes and soften their heart to begin to want to maybe dive deeper to get into the Bible. Or we'll simply say, well, thank you very much. I'll be on my way. And I don't think that God intends for us when we're dealing with a culture that has a very different worldview than we have as Christians for us to walk away from those kinds of conversations. But the problem that many of us experience is, is that we're ill-equipped to have those conversations. Our conversations with people would simply be, well, this is what the Bible says. I've always believed it. I was brought up to believe it. I was taught to believe it. This is what my family believes. And beyond that, we don't have much ammunition to be able to have a conversation with someone. So what we have been trying to do is to give you some ammunition. And I wanted you to see the video because in the video, it's important that you catch what was being said by each of the people that were speaking. They were saying that there is no way that we can, even outside, even with biblical arguments, but there is no way that we can give a person 100% certainty uh, about the truths that we believe. Okay, that we're not going to be able to give them 100% certainty. But what we are able to do is we're, uh, we are able to expose them to the evidence 
and help them to see the rationality of the faith that we have and the faith that we profess. If you can help somebody to see that the evidence for the things we believe is strong and there is a lot of it, that person very well might be open to pursue where that evidence may take them. An illustration I have used before is if you're in a dark room and you're in a very dark room, it's totally dark, there's no light at all, except there's one little hole in the wall up in the right-hand corner of that room. You're sitting on the opposite wall. Do you have any reason to complain about being in a dark room if you're not willing to get up and at least try to go over and see where that little hole leads to or what that is beyond that little hole? You, you would tell anybody, if you're in a dark room and there's one little ray of light coming in, you don't really have a right to complain about being in that dark room unless you get up and walk over to investigate that little bit of light. And the same truth applies when it comes to Christianity's truth claims. I don't think it's right for anybody to complain that the evidence isn't there or the truth isn't uh, available uh, to be discovered when they don't take the steps necessary to go and examine the truth that they're presented with. So what we're trying to do is to help people to see you may not have the window that lets all the light in you want right now, but what we can show you is there is some light if you're willing to pursue that light. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight as we discuss the arguments for the existence of God. Now, when you talk about the arguments for the existence of God, there are uh, numerous arguments, but we can break those down really into four big arguments. Now, don't get uh, scared or frightened by the big words as we kind of talk about these words tonight, but let me just lay them out for you. They're up on the screen. They are the cosmological argument, and that's the first one we're going to look at in just a moment, which is the argument from design, uh, and, uh, or excuse me, the argument from uh, the beginning, or the argument from motion. We'll come to that in just a moment. The second one is the teleological argument, and that is the argument from design, or the argument from the intricacies of creation. The third one is the moral argument, and that makes perfect sense. You know that the morality that uh, is within the heart and life of human beings. And the last one is the ontological argument, which is one of the most difficult to, uh, to understand. And I've got a little video I want you to see tonight. You're going to have a little philosophy lesson when it's all over, if you make it to the end. Uh, but we're going to have a little philosophy lesson, help explain the ontological argument. And that's the argument from being, ontos is being. Uh, in Greek, which is, is simply a way of describing the greatest being or understanding the greatest being. So we're going to walk through these together tonight, the cosmological, the teleological, the moral, and the ontological arguments. And I know those are big words, so we're going to try to put them in real simple ways for you to understand them so that you can use them even, you know, when you're at Kroger or you're at Target or you're sitting in the, in the waiting room at the uh, DMV, which you'll be there for numerous hours. Uh, and, and so you'll be able to get into these arguments. We're going to try to put them in very practical, understandable ways. So let's jump in. I know the, the print is kind of small up there, but let's jump into the cosmological argument for a moment. And, and I want to give you a little overview of it, and then I want to give you some practical ways to understand uh, the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument is an argument that assumes general 
as opposed to special revelation, and that that type of revelation, general revelation, is valid, okay? Now, let me give you just a picture of this so you'll understand it from your Bible. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Psalm 19, or if you have your uh, iPads or your cell phones, I want you to turn to Psalm 19. And, uh, and just keep that psalm open for a moment. And then if you're really fast at turning, you might also turn over to Romans chapter 1 because we're going to go there in just a moment. But let me read to you Psalm 19 for a second. And I want to point out as I read what David is saying as he writes this incredible psalm. In my view, one of the greatest psalms in all the Bible. But listen to how he, he writes. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So we'll stop right there, verse 6, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. This is a picture of what we call general revelation. This is God writing his name, writing his existence into all creation. And so David tells us that the heavens declare God's glory. The sun going across the sky, the firmament, the creation tells a story to a lost world that there is, in fact, a God. That's what we call, or theologians call, general revelation. Uh, we see another example of this in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Again, this is a picture of what we call general revelation. If you want to know there is a God, look at the creation, look at the world, look at the, the, the animals, look at the mountains, look at the oceans, look at the sky, look at the heavens, uh, look, look at the, the stars and the moon and the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so people will often ask me, and they probably have asked you, what about the people who live in a country uh, where there is no Christian missionary or no Christian witness? And, and what if they die uh, and never hear about Jesus? I mean, are they going to be accountable? And while it is a difficult question and difficult for us to understand as human beings, the reality is, is that the Bible says that everyone is without excuse because God has made himself known. And because he has made himself known, if a, a person will sit in that dark room and see that ray of light and make their way toward that ray of light, I believe that God will open opportunities or ways for them to hear the 
further revelation of God. And so I will also add to you, when we ask that question, it is also a question that should bear tremendous burdens upon those of us who are Christians. Because to know that there are people who, who have not heard of the name of Jesus ought to keep us awake at night. It, it, it ought to stir our hearts. It ought to move us to, to want to do everything we can, whether it's going or giving and praying, so that the gospel will be preached to all nations. And we have a responsibility in making sure that that message gets preached. But you see, the Bible makes it clear that salvation is found in only one name, the name of Jesus. And it is only by accepting him that one can experience eternal life, by receiving him and his sacrifice on their behalf. Or if they reject him, they will spend eternity separated from him. You say, well, how are people supposed to understand that, that there is a God and that God has a purpose? God has written that purpose of, of his existence in the heavens. And the Bible calls that general revelation. Okay, general revelation. But back to Psalm 19 for a moment. Hopefully you didn't turn away from it. Uh, if you did, nimble your fingers and go back for a second. But in Psalm 19, verse 7, David switches gears and he moves from general revelation to special revelation. And he says in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And he goes all the way down through the rest of Psalm 19. And he talks about your word is sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. And, and by it, your servant is warned. And in keeping it is great reward. And it is your word that helps us to discern the errors of our heart and declare from us our hidden faults and, and, and things about us that we don't even know that aren't uh, in alignment with God's purposes for us. And so David says, I want my words and my actions to be acceptable in your sight. I want your word to guide the way that I live. Notice how David switched from general revelation to what? Special revelation. General revelation tells us that there is a God. Special revelation tells us about the God who is personal and has revealed himself and has a purpose and a plan for all of our lives. Special revelation tells us about the plan ultimately in his son who came to die on our behalf and become a substitute for us and our sin and to die on a cross and be raised from the dead. So again, the Bible puts these two pictures of how God reveals himself before us. General revelation in creation, special revelation through scripture. So going back to the cosmological argument then, when we talk about the cosmological argument, we're talking about God revealing himself in his creation. And so the argument goes like this in a very simple way. God is the uncaused cause. Uh, everything that we see in our world, uh, everything about us, everything about God's creation, uh, everything about the world in which we live had to have something that caused it or created it or set it in motion. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, for example, over in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and, and verse 3. Let, let's go there for a second.
By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So there has to be, behind all of the things that have been caused in creation, an uncaused cause. Now hold on to that thought for just a moment. Uh, so when you think about this from a purely secular view, you've heard of the Big Bang, you know, that gives the picture of how everything came into existence, or one of the, the uh, proffered uh, views for how everything came into existence. Well, the Big Bang, in some ways, uh, is exactly what the cosmological argument is talking about, that there was a time or a point when everything came into existence. It, it was caused. Now, the Big Bang goes about it from a different perspective than a creationist or a Christian who believes the Bible would go at it. Uh, the, the Big Bang theorists would say, well, everything was created by a chance, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and the Christian would say, well, everything was created purposefully by God. So you're, you're, you're operating, when you look at creation, uh, by faith, regardless of how you look at it. You're either believing that everything came into existence through time and chance, and, and then boom, it all came into existence, and then maybe through evolutionary uh, processes, or you believe that God created it the way the Bible says. It doesn't matter in this sense. You're still going about it by faith. You have to believe your particular view by faith. You're, taking, you're putting faith in one thing, or you're putting it in another thing. And so... Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century, uh, gave us this argument. And let me give it to you just very simply. And you have a little bit of the picture of it on your sheet. Uh, the cosmological argument is a, an argument that, that, that really goes in this way. The universe had a beginning. The universe had a beginning. So the universe is not eternal. And scientifically, the second law of ther thermodynamics uh, proves that. We, we, we know that, that everything had a beginning and things aren't moving into order. They're moving into disorder. Uh, so the second law of thermodynamics helps us to understand that, listen, there was a beginning point and something happened, okay? So the universe had a beginning. There's nobody that would deny that, that the universe had a beginning. Argument number two is anything that has a beginning must have an adequate cause, right? So if something had a beginning, something had to create that beginning. Uh, so you have, a, you know, like I said, you have a couple of uh, alternatives, what caused everything. If you want to go about it from a naturalistic view, from a scientific view, you'll say that, well, uh, either matter and, and chance and the right circumstances uh, had to come together to create this world, or if you come about it from a theistic or a theocentric or Christian worldview, you'll say that God uh, was the beginning. But anything that had a beginning, Aquinas would argue, had to have an adequate cause. That makes perfect sense. And remember, when you have syllogistic reasoning, an argument like this, the, the conclusion, these are deductive arguments, but the conclusion is only going to be strong if the arguments are strong. If you could poke holes in the arguments, then you could poke hole in the conclusion. 
So the universe had a beginning. Otherwise, the universe was eternal, right? And we know, even from science, that the universe wasn't eternal, that, that it had a beginning. And so if it had a beginning, something had to create it, and something had to be the beginning. And therefore, Aquinas argued, therefore the universe was caused by something, and his step would be this cause is God. Now, if you look down at the bottom, you'll see either there was no cause, and option one is there's nothing, or there was something that, that, uh, that, that existed, either matter, chance, or God, um, that created the world. So Aquinas' argument is really simple, and I'll give you a great way to picture this. If you, ever, if you ever see the little balls that are hanging from little strings, you got those on your desk, all right, you know, you, you get them, and they're just hanging, and, and you take one of the little balls at the end, and you lift it up, and you let that ball hit the other ball, and it hits the other ball, and hits the other ball, and hits the other ball. If those balls that are hanging there have no outside a force to begin that first ball in motion, those balls are just going to hang there unless something, a gust of wind, bumping the table, uh, or picking one of those balls up and letting those balls hit the other balls, right? Does that make sense? So Aquinas simply made the argument, he said that every effect has a cause, there cannot be an infinite regress of causes, therefore there had to be a first cause. Now repeat that back to me. Because it's really simple to understand. Every effect has a cause. And you cannot have an infinite number of causes. If you go, how many balls are you going to put? You're going to put them all the way back into eternity? Well, where do you stop? You can't go all the way back into eternity. Something had to start everything moving. And so Aquinas would argue you have to have an uncaused cause. Now, does this prove the existence of God? No, but it pushes the argument in a direction where an honest person would have to be able to say, well, I, I, maybe there's some validity there. Now, are there uh, objections to this particular view? Of course there are objections to this uh, particular view. It doesn't necessarily mean that the uncaused cause is the God of the Bible. I mean, the uncaused cause could mean that there was some superhuman uh, contingent being. Or maybe there were several eternal gods. You know, the Hindus have millions of gods. It doesn't prove the existence of the God that we believe and the God that we serve, but it does open the door to at least a conversation. Could this be an argument that points us to the book of Genesis in the beginning, God, the uncaused cause, created. Um, so, again, remember that uh, we're not definitively able to prove this, but what we are able to do is open the door. And I guarantee you a lot of people that you will talk to have never thought about it that deeply and have considered it that deeply. Um, there's also an argument that is tied to this we can just touch on, and that argument is the argument of necessary beings and contingent beings. What is a contingent? What is something that's contingent? It's dependent on something, right? Like your children are contingent, right? And you're ready to get that contingency out of your house, aren't you? Uh, 
unfortunately, I don't think it ever happens. But a, a, a contingent being is a being whose existence is dependent on someone else. Okay? Now, your children's existence isn't dependent on you, but you get the point, what, the, the illustration a little bit. So a contingent being, right, is a being whose existence is is based on something else. A necessary being is a being who has no contingencies, okay? So when we talk about a necessary being, we believe that God is a necessary being because God is the, the, uh, not dependent on anyone. There was never a time that God didn't exist. God always existed. He's eternal. God has no beginning. He has no end. He has always existed. His existence is not dependent upon anything or anyone else. He is the necessary being above all necessary beings. And if it weren't for God, none of us would be in existence because we are not necessary beings. We are contingent. Our existence depends on something or someone else. And again, Aquinas would say that the creation was all dependent upon God as the first cause. Uh, sometimes, maybe if you remember back to your college days, he is the unmoved mover or the prime mover. Uh, he is the one that set it all into motion. So this is the cosmological argument. There are a number of examples uh, in the Bible. If you want to write some of these verses down and look at them later. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 10. Isaiah 46, 5 through 9. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. Uh, Psalm 115, 4 through 9. And pretty much the 38th chapter uh, of the book of Job. Uh, are some examples of that in, in, in the Bible. Let's move on quickly to the teleological argument. Uh, the teleological argument uh, is an argument from Psalm 19, 1 through 4, and Psalm 139, 14. Uh, when you talk about Psalm 19, again, verses 1 through 4, remember we read those verses, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork, and the day utters out speech, and the night reveals knowledge. He's, he's talking about uh, creation. The word telos in Greek means end. And so when you look at the teleological argument, you're looking at the end of something. You're looking how it's put together. Uh, so you begin to, to look, and that's why there's a mousetrap up there. We'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, there's an argument that has been used uh, about a watchmaker. Um, a guy named William Paley uh, created this argument, and his argument is, is very simple. Paley, who was in the 18th century 19, and died in the early 19th century, had an argument. His argument went like this. If you're walking along a deserted beach and you think there's never been a human being on this beach, you, 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 you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you come across an island, you get out of the boat, you're walking on the beach, you're the first person that's ever been there, right? You, you, there's never been a human being. You're on an uncharted, desert, uh, deserted island, right? Like Gilligan's Island. And you, you're walking along, and there's a watch, a wristwatch there, right? And you're going to think to yourself when you see that, amazing how on this deserted island, all of the environmental factors came together, and this watch just miraculously came together. 
Even if that watch isn't working, or even if that watch is in a thousand pieces, you're going to see that wristwatch, and what conclusion are you going to make? You're going to make the conclusion, somebody has been here, somebody left that watch here, and the presence of the wristwatch bears truth to a designer of that wristwatch. So, if, if, and if I took, for example, all of the pieces of a wristwatch, put them in a bag, and I had you come up here, and sometimes I do that as an illustration, and I say, shake this bag as long as you want to, and uh, let's see if it'll get put back together. You can shake it all day long, and that watch is not going to be assembled in that bag. For that watch to be assembled, it has to be assembled by somebody who has skill and expertise and knowledge of how watches work and the proper tools, and so they're able to put that together. So William Paley made this argument, the watchmaker argument. And uh, his argument kind of goes like this. The universe shows extensive evidence of purpose design. Do you believe that? It sure does. The way that the tides and the, and the, and the, the lunar cycle and just everything about the, the amount of oxygen and the tilt of the earth and, 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 and just the, 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 the miraculously... Uh, put together planet on which we live bears witness of a purpose, purposeful design. Uh, purposeful design, the second part of that argument would be, doesn't happen by accident. Things, it, it, another argument would be, uh, this one has been used too, if you're driving down the road and there are these, like sometimes you'll go on vacation and, and you'll see, like if you ever go to Hawaii, people take the white, rocks and they put them in the black lava and they spell things out, spell names out in the lava. Y'all ever seen that? One of you. Uh, but anyway, they do, like they'll say love, right? And you're driving along this lava field and in white rocks there's this word love. You don't drive along and go, isn't that crazy how it rained last night and those rocks just washed into that? Into that? You, 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 don't, you don't think that. You think somebody's been over here, they've been finding white rocks and they, they, they wrote this word purposefully. Uh, that, that, that's how we look at, 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 at things that, uh, that show design. They don't happen by accident. And then, so therefore, the argument is there must be a divine designer. So you see his argument. He says, the universe shows extensive evidence of purposive design. Purposive design doesn't happen by accident. Therefore, there must be a divine designer. And his argument would be that that designer is God. Now, so let's think about this for a moment, this teleological argument. And there's lots of different arguments that are given. But look at a mousetrap. A mousetrap's a pretty simple design, right? You have, you have the spring, you have the clip, you have um, uh, the, the, the little trigger, you know, where, where, the, where the cheese sits. If you take out any part of that design of that mousetrap, just very simple mousetrap. Any part of the design of that mousetrap, that mousetrap won't work. It won't work. So every part of that mousetrap is important for its functioning. And you take out one part and the mousetrap doesn't work. Well, that's a simple way to look at that how a, a, a purposeful designer will put a mousetrap together. They have to be in a certain way at a certain time which, by the way, is an argument against evolution, in a sense. Because if, if, if you, you're talking about an evolution of a mousetrap, all of the parts have to be assembled together at the same time for that mousetrap to work, or it doesn't function. It has no functionality. 
take that into a more complex level like the human eye. And I'm not an expert, a medical expert, a scientific expert. I do have a biology degree, but that doesn't go very far. But I will tell you what I am told is the complexity of the human eye is very similar. It, not to a mousetrap, it's much more complex, but that the various parts of the eye all have to be uh, functioning for the eye to function the way that the eye was intended to function. And again, all of that points to a purposeful designer. Now again, does this designer, could, could this be God? Uh, yes, but then there's some objections that are commonly thrown out. For example, the objection of evil in the world. Um, well, if, if God purposefully designed this planet and it's so beautiful, why is there evil like tsunamis and tornadoes? And so it brings that question to bear into the argument. Uh, the other premise would be, well, it, could it be possible that evolution uh, was purposeful in the sense that, that, uh, that, that it, it, it could accomplish the same? Um, and then even if you take it to its logical conclusion that design means a designer, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have God as the designer. It could be God's, or it could be a superhuman God, or it could be some other uh, type of being. So that's just the teleological argument. Look at the creation. Look at the int intricacies of who we are. Um, look, look at the, 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 the purposeful design of, of this world. There's lots of examples we could give. We don't have time. So then we have number three, the moral argument. The moral argument. And it's, it's really simple. I love that cartoon, by the way. Uh, you know, if the Ten Commandments, they're not going to like it. Uh, but the moral argument argues that there is a moral absolute that exists, and it implies the source of that moral absolute, which by definition uh, we would argue is God. This uh, argument was set forth by Immanuel Kant, uh, who was an 18th century uh, philosopher. And he believed that all the other arguments you could poke holes in, and they failed to prove God's existence. Uh, so he felt that what was needed was a practical argument, and he argues that there is a moral necessity. And his, uh, the, the, there's a, 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 a morality or a, a necessity of understanding morality. Let me give you his argument. He says, all sane adult people have a sense of morality. And notice he says sane, because somebody will say, well, what about some psychopath, Okay. But, but his point was all sane people have a sense of morality. All people fall short of their own moral standard of perfection. Um, when is the last time you did something that you felt guilty about? Right? Well, don't, don't answer that. I don't want to know. But you feel guilty. Why, why do you feel guilty? I mean, you know, even if you're not a Christian, why do you feel guilty? Number three, immortality would be required in order to achieve this inherent desire for perfection and wholeness. Therefore, God must exist in order for there to be immortality. His argument is really simple. Um, maybe I'll give you a real simplified view of his argument. He says, all people have a moral standard. Moral standards are objective, not subjective. And therefore, there must be a supreme moral lawgiver. Now, you would say, well, what about some tribe, you know, some cannibalistic tribe or something like that? But even in a, an extreme case like that, there is a system of morality that is built within that tribe or that tribe wouldn't survive. There's a code. There's a standard. Now, again, 
that standard is not acceptable in, 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 in the way we describe it or the way the Bible describes it, but every human being, Kant would argue, has a built-in moral compass. And the fact that they have a moral compass implies that there must be a moral lawgiver. There must be a standard. So if you look at your sheet, C.S. Lewis also uses this argument. He says, all men are conscious of an objective moral law. Moral laws imply a moral lawgiver. Therefore, there must be a moral lawgiver. How do we know what's right and what's wrong? That's always a question I love to ask people. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? You know, why, why is it not subjective? Why is there some objective moral law? Where did that moral law come from? That is the moral argument. Okay, let's move on to one final argument I just want to touch on tonight. And I've uh, debated even whether or not to do this one. <coughs> um, by the way, I didn't even mention it, but on your sheet is the teleological argument uh, for your um, understanding. And uh, it lists the watchmaker there for you and gives you a little picture of that on that handout sheet. But let's talk a little bit about the <coughs> ontological argument. The ontological argument is, uh, was... Uh, uh, developed by a man by the name of Anselm of Canterbury. I know you got out of bed and said, I hope he talks about him tonight. Uh, 11th century uh, uh, Platonic idealist. He was a rationalist. Um, anyway, he wanted to be able to, to, to make this argument to prove the existence of God. Um, and, and so his argument is, 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 is hard to understand, but I, I want to I show you a video uh, it's only about, so don't get freaked out when you see it. It's only about five minutes, not long. It'll help you understand it. But his argument is this. He says that God is the thing, that than which nothing greater can exist. So his argument is really simple. He says, I want you to think about, I'm gonna, the video's going to just help you with this. But he, he says, I want you to think about the, the, the most perfect uh, being that you can think of, the, the best possible thing you can think of, okay? What, what, whatever that is, you know, is it a, a, a six-pound bag or Reese's peanut butter cups for me, frozen in the freezer where you can pull them out and just wear them out? I mean, it, it, but the best possible thing that you can think of, okay? Now, if you can think of it in your mind, if it doesn't exist, it's not the greatest possible thing. Because the greatest possible thing would not just be something you can conceive in your mind. It would be something that really must exist. Does that make sense? You know, so if I can think of what I think God would be, and if my manufacturing of what God would be is only in my mind, then it's not the greatest possible thing that God could be because the greatest possible thing that God could be would be for God to exist beyond just being imaginary. That's why this is called the ontological argument. It's the argument of, uh, of being. And so I want you to watch this video because I think it'll be helpful and then we'll come back and we'll all be confused together. Crash Course Philosophy is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace, share your passion with the world. It's about time we had a serious talk. 
about religion. The philosophy of religion is often confused with theology, which makes sense because they both take God and religion as their subjects. But theology starts with assuming that God exists and then figures out what follows, or theology might try to solve philosophical problems that might arise from a belief in God. But one thing that's never on the table in theology is simply not believing in God. Atheism is not an option. That's what separates the philosophical study of religion from the theological. Philosophers take nothing as a given, and that includes religious belief. Everything is on the table, and everything needs an argument. So no area of belief is sacred, and that means even your sacred beliefs are going to need to be examined, and evidence will need to be given. Some people say that religion is the one area where you don't need arguments, that faith alone is enough. But philosophers don't take faith for an answer. After all, I might have faith that the moon is made of green cheese. So what? Faith is definitionally unprovable, which makes it, from a philosophical perspective, not valuable. So if you're a theist, now's the time to offer some justifications for your beliefs. And if you're an atheist, it's time for you to pay attention too. No one's off the hook. We all need to pay attention to these arguments because religion is hugely important. Can you think of many things that have been as influential in shaping human history than religious belief? Probably not. So if we can get to the bottom of it, we should. And you thought I talked fast. I'll get to God in a minute, but first I want to go over a few things that the philosophy of religion is not. It's not about believing whatever your parents taught you, because that doesn't prove anything about the truth of a religious belief. If how you were raised proved something about religious truth, then every religion, and therefore also no religion, would be true. So how you were raised can give you a reason that you hold a certain belief, but it says nothing whatsoever about its truth. Philosophy of religion is also not the study of the Bible, because you can't use what's written in a book to prove the truth of the book. You need outside evidence. There's also a whole area of scholarship devoted to understanding the Bible by considering the time and place in which it was written, and such study can be very helpful in understanding certain things about religion. But it doesn't help us here. Philosophy of religion is also not religious anthropology or religious sociology or psychological understanding of our reasons for religious belief. Those are all wonderful things that you can and should study, but they are not what we're studying here. What we are doing is considering whether we can offer arguments in support of belief in God's existence. And a long time ago, there was a man who argued that God's existence is provable, 11th century French monk Anselm of Canterbury. He offered a deductive argument for the existence of God based on what he understood to be the nature of God's being, or the definition of God. Because the study of being is called ontology, his argument, and others like it, are called ontological arguments. Now, what do you think God is like? Long, flowing white beard, robe to match, nice guy, hard to reach on the phone. Well, Anselm aimed a little bit higher. In fact, he thought God is, by definition, the best possible thing we can imagine. The best thing. Just try to think of the coolest, awesomest, most amazing, and wonderful thing you can imagine. And whatever you're thinking of, Anselm said that God is better. He's just the best. In Anselm's words, God is that than which no greater can be conceived. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God must exist, according to Anselm. After all, he pointed out there are just two ways in which something can exist. Something can exist only in our minds and be strictly imaginary, like Santa or unicorns. Or it can exist in our minds, but also in reality, like pizza and horses, something that we can imagine, but that's also real. Anselm pointed out, and he does appear to be right about this, that any good thing would be better if it existed in reality as well as in our minds. I mean, unicorns, they're pretty great, but wouldn't they be better if they were real? Or the perfect romantic partner? 
Smart, funny, hot, likes the same movies and games that you do, pretty rich, would be pretty nice in your mind, but even better if they actually existed. Well, Anselm thought so too. And from there, he believed he could prove God's existence. Because if we define God as the greatest thing that we can conjure up in our minds, the only thing that could possibly be greater than him would be a real version. And since we're already imagining the greatest thing possible, there can't be anything better. Therefore, God has to exist both in imagination and in reality. Anselm was sure that he had done it, deductively proven God's existence in a way that was immune to error. Here it is one more time, laid out as a philosophical argument. God is the greatest thing we can think of. Things can exist only in our imaginations, or they can also exist in reality. Things that exist in reality are always better than things that exist only in our imaginations. If God existed only in our imaginations, he wouldn't be the greatest thing that we can think of because God in reality would be better. Therefore, God must exist in reality. And some thought this All right, y'all repeat that. What I wanted you to see in that weird video is the, the uh, attempt that Anselm had, in a sense, by saying that God is the greatest thing that you can conceive of, and if you can conceive of something greater, um, then, it, then, then what you're conceiving of wouldn't be God. So God is the greatest of all beings. Um, it's a difficult argument to get your, your hands around, but it is a, it, it is a, it is a, a strong argument. Now... What I want you to think about as we kind of land the, the airplane a little bit here is all of these arguments cannot definitively prove. If you go back to what he said in the video, and I thought it was really helpful, a lot of us base our proof of our beliefs based on heritage, or we base it on our church, or we base it on what our pastor taught us. Those things are all important, but they cannot definitively prove your faith. If you'll say, well, I know that my faith is true. Well, why do you know your faith is true? Why do you know that God is real? Because my parents taught me that God is real. That's great. That, that's powerful for you. What your parents taught you was true. What the Bible teaches you, we know. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We can trust it completely and believe it. But it doesn't prove the argument that you're trying to make. Because that other person can turn right back around and they can say, I believe in Buddhism, or I believe in Hinduism. Why? Because my parents taught me that. Just because you were taught that doesn't prove the validity of what you were taught. That's why I will tell you all the time, don't just accept what you hear me say, or don't accept what you hear your Sunday school teacher say, or don't accept what you hear or read on, on the internet. Prove it. Go back and, and, and investigate it for yourself. See if it's true. Investigate the evidence. Remember we talked about in, in, inductive arguments. We go back inductively and we begin to argue inductively. Look at the facts and the facts and the facts and the facts and those facts begin to point together. The circumstantial evidence begins to point us in a direction and our hope is, is that we'll see in that direction the ray of light that's shining through the wall and we'll be able to lead people to investigate that light and the, when they begin to investigate that light they'll see more light and they'll see more light and they'll see more light and then God who opens the eyes of our hearts that Paul tells to the Corinthian, the Corinthian church God opens their eyes and their understanding and he helps them to see the truth of, of, uh, of, of his word so when we talk about arguments yeah we can look at cosmology there had to be a beginning, a first cause, an uncaused cause. There had to be a necessary being uh, that put all of us contingent beings uh, where we are. Or yes, there has to be a moral lawgiver. Otherwise, how do we know what morality is? Is morality subjective based on a community or is it based on a moral lawgiver? 
Yes, we can talk about teleological arguments, the design factor, the world's designed in such a way, the universe, our bodies, creation, that points to a, a, a divine maker or a, a divine designer. And yeah, we can talk about ontology, the fact that we can conceive in our minds of a great being. Uh, does that point us in the direction that to conceive of it is one thing, but that being must exist? Um, so all of those things can kind of point us in that direction, but ultimately, what, what does it come down to? It comes down to faith, right? It comes down to faith. So ultimately, we're going ha- to have faith in science, or we're going to have faith in naturalism, or we're going to have faith in something, or we're going to have faith in God. There was a French physicist who in the 17th century, his name was Pascal, and he came up with an argument to try to convince his gambling friends, his gambling Frenchmen, that the, 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 the truths of Christianity were real. And so he, he, you've heard of Pascal's wager. And his wager is, listen, if it's not true, what do you have to lose? Right? But if it is true, you have everything to lose. So if you're a non-believer and Christianity is false, what have you lost if it's false? Ah, you've not really lost anything. You've, you know, if it's false, you've, you've gained, a, you've gained a, some worldly pleasures. You've had a great time. Uh, but what if it's true and you're, and you're lost? You've lost everything. You've lost it all. Well, what if you're a Christian and a believer and it happens to be false? If you're a believer, Pascal says, well, you lose out on a few worldly pleasures Um, but you gain the hope and stability of a a walk of faith and the joy of being with people of faith and people who have meaning and purpose. But if it's true, what what happens to you? You've gained everything. So Pascal said the Christian has everything to gain and nothing to lose, and the non-believer has nothing to gain and everything to lose. And so his argument was, where are you going to put your wager? So what we're trying to do as Christians is we're trying to point people in the direction of the truth claims of, 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 uh, of what we believe based on some of the evidences. You have any? We have two minutes for questions. This is great. I did that on purpose. Any questions about that? Again, we're trying to give you just a little bit of help. You don't have to be a philosophical guru to answer people. You, 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 can, you can give them some... some, some um, insights that, that, that help them to know that, that, there, that there is that light. There is, and, and that's my goal when I share my faith with somebody who doesn't believe. I'm always trying to get them to see, is there, is there a glimmer of light that you might want to, to try to see if it's true? I can't talk them into the faith. If I can talk them into it, somebody else can talk them out of it, right? Yes. And that's, and that's the fifth argument. We didn't even look at that. Yeah. That's, we didn't look at that, but that is the fifth argument, the experiential argument. You know, the exper- and it's, it's one of uh, several others, but it's, it would have been the fifth one had we had time. And that's the experience that I've had by, you know, it's uh, he lives, he lives, he lives within my heart. You ask me how I know he, li- know he lives. Uh, it's, uh, it's that personal experience that we have with him. It's a great, great point. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, be on our way. Father, thank you for the time we have tonight. Lord, I pray that you just help us as we kind of take this journey together. Every week, I, I pray it's just another stone we put in the foundation of our faith and of our belief.
Lord, I pray you would.